Uh, my name is Christine, and like Jason says, my husband Lance and I have been at Two Rivers for about five years now. We have two boys, Caleb and Jace. They are five and three, and they teach us a lot about life and what we thought we knew. Now we know we didn't actually know. Uh, so this morning, we are talking about fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes 8. We have been in Ecclesiastes for about the last seven weeks. And in this series, we're calling it Kingdom Living. And essentially, what that means is that we are living life now with the end in mind. Because we know the end as Christians. And that is what informs our perspective today of how we interact with the world and life and God. So, before I jump into this, though, I have to throw my five-year-old under the bus a little bit because, once again, he has worked himself into a sermon illustration. A couple of weeks ago, I brought him home from school, and on the way home, he said, I have things in my pockets and my shoes. And I was like, okay, that's weird. We get home, he takes off his shoes and starts pulling out fives and twenties and ones and tens in his pockets, and I was appalled because I'm raising a felon. And I was like, where did you get this? He said, I got it from school. Was it yours? No, I took it, because I'm going to buy something. I was like, okay. But why did you take it if you knew it wasn't yours? And he said, my friend told me to. I was like, that's not better. That is not a good excuse. We'll table that conversation to peer pressure for later. But for right now, I need to deal with the fact that you just stole from school. But I also had to break the news to him that the money he had stuffed in his pants and his shoes was paper money, and it actually had no value at all. But in his mind, because somebody else told him he did, it did, it was worth something. And he needed, like Ecclesiastes, to hoard and stuff his pockets with all this money that wasn't actually worth anything. To be fair, I can't judge my son because I did something very similar when I was five. But I was worse. I stole real money from church. <laughs> and here's the situation. Dad, you might remember this. I, that was the time when they had offering plates, and we did our offering at the beginning of the surface. And it came by, and I was like, shoop, and put it in my pocket. And I held it in my hand, this sweaty ball. Of, it was change in my hand, the whole surface. We get out to the car, and I think, I'm in the clear. I have gotten away with this. So I dumped it in the door handle. My mom looks over and says what I said. What is that? Where did you get it? And I don't remember anything I said. All I remember was coming to the pastor, because my mom marched me right back in that church, and you will put that money in the hand of the pastor, and you apologize. I don't remember if he said anything. I don't even remember looking at his face. I just remember him from here down and his hand out like this. And that was enough to cure me forever. I had... I don't know if it was the fear of the Lord or the fear of Pastor Cop that I never stole again. It cured me. And so I did the same thing with my son. I was like, you will go to your teacher and give her this money. I was like, this is so fitting with Ecclesiastes, these things that we pursue and we think are valuable because people tell us that they are, but in the end, they really aren't worth anything. Ecclesiastes is this journey of discovery, and we are discovering alongside the teacher what 
is the meaning of life? What in this life has actual value and meaning? How do I interpret this crazy chaos that is going on around us? The teacher has been observing these different themes in the last seven weeks of work and toil, success and hardship, wisdom and folly, and others, justice and power. And each time, he tests them with his source of wisdom, which is his experience, his knowledge, and his judgment to determine what is the meaning of all of this. These are all good things by themselves. These are all gifts But when we pursue them first and they come out of order of where they should be in our lives, they're no longer good. And their worth dries up. They do not purchase anything of actual value. They run dry and they are limited. So the fear of the Lord, what we're going to find in chapter 8, is that it enables us to see clearly from God's perspective what all of this means here and in the future? How do I make sense of life? If anybody else has been like me, in the past seven weeks, you've been racking your brain trying to understand the structure of all this because these themes seem to be woven through each chapter and they come across again and again and it's, it's almost as if he contradicts himself within the same chapter and it's extremely frustrating. And so I was doing all this research trying to uncover the meaning within the structure because in some biblical texts, you can find and understand the reasoning by looking at where it is and how it fits in the greater context. Let me alleviate you of your pain. There isn't a structure. Scholars have been looking for the last hundred years to find one, and there isn't one. Uh, Corey Bauer is a Bible teacher, and he likens Ecclesiastes to this really well-written dissertation, and all of these themes have their own thesis statement, and they're beautiful, but then the author takes his dissertation and like throws all the papers in your face, and they seem to get jumbled and mixed up. But for me, it feels like the way I think. My eye do not think in a linear fashion. For me to communicate takes a lot of effort. It's like a thought process that we're walking through alongside him, which is why it feels so real. The teacher asks valid questions, real questions about life. Questions that we ask today, they're tangible. And he doesn't offer us trite theological, pithy responses. These are not bumper sticker band-aids. These are staring straight into the reality of this world and asking, where is God? What does this mean? Before we jumped into chapter eight, uh, let me give those of you who maybe haven't been here the last uh, seven weeks a general overview of where we've been so far. In chapter one, the teacher does give us like his thesis statement that he will elaborate for 11 to 12 chapters. And it says, meaningless, meaningless, everything in life is meaningless. This word meaningless is hebel, and we've translated it to be something like vapor. It is a visual metaphor to help us understand these ideas differently. Vapor, dust, Uh, something that's not tangible. And for today, we are going to use one of those other interpretations 
Hebel as a mirage. It's an optical illusion. It's not quite as it seems, and it's not actually real. So let's turn to chapter 8. We are going to look at fear of the Lord. First half of this is going to be dense teaching, and then we're going to get into some preaching at the end. But in the beginning, I want us to look at how the teacher arrives at fear of the Lord in this process. So we're going to analyze the ways that he tests these theories, specifically today in chapter 8 through injustice and oppression. That's kind of his experiment case study that we're going to figure out where God is and what's the point of all of this. If you have the ability to turn to chapter 8 in a biblical translation on an iPhone with the amplified version, that might really help us today. I apologize, I did not have slides. I love slides, not as much as Andrew West, but I do love slides. I'm in my ninth week of grad school, and I don't know if I have the time, brain, or computer space for another PowerPoint slide. So I apologize for today, but in the future I will. I'll try to use a lot of repetition. Here are the three tests the teacher is going to use to figure out the meaning of injustice and oppression. His experience, his knowledge, and his judgment. That is his definition of wisdom. It's also the same one that we use today. So keep those in mind. Chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 2. We'll come back to one at the end. Verse 2. I counsel you to keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Your translation might say because of God's oath to him. Do not be in a hurry to get out of the king's presence. Do not join in a malevolent matter, for the king will do whatever he pleases. For the word of a king is authoritative and powerful. And who will say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps and observes a royal command will experience neither trouble nor misery. For a wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight. Sounds a lot like chapter 3. Though mankind's misery and trouble lies heavily upon him who rebels against the king, for no one knows what will happen. Who can tell him how and when it will happen? There is no man who has power and authority over the wind to restrain the wind or spirit. Essentially, it's your spirit referencing death. Nor does he have authority over the day of death. There is no discharge from service during time of war, and evil will not rescue those who actively seek to practice it. Nine, all this I have seen while applying my mind to every deed that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man has exercised power over others to their detriment. Let's pause here for a second. Ultimately, he's saying... It may seem as if the king has absolute power, that he is in control, but this is a mirage. Ultimately, the king and any person has no real control to the point where they cannot control death or anticipate the future, know when they're going to die. The king himself, and the idea that he might have absolute power, he is still subject to a higher power and authority. 
This has been an example, of, a, a micro example of the retribution principle. And it's this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And what he's saying is, this isn't playing out. The retribution principle isn't happening. Therefore, life and God might not be just. So when we go into 10 and 11, he's going to expand it to a macro level, bigger example. And here's the background. He's telling a story about a recent incident that probably happened that offended the Jewish community and their sensitivities. The idea that these wicked men came into a holy place, desecrated it, probably killed some people. They left. There was retaliation from the Jewish people, and they killed some of those foreign offenders. And instead of being punished, those, the wicked men who did this evil thing, they are paraded through the streets with pomp and circumstance and given full ceremonial burial. So let's listen to his version of the story. In verse 10, So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who, go, who used to go in and out of the holy place, but did not thereby escape their doom. And they are praised in spite of their evil and soon forgotten in the city where they did such things. This, too, is a mirage. Because the sentence against an evil act is not extended quickly, then the hearts of the sons of men are fully set to do evil. And it's not clear if he is implying whose hearts. If in delayed punishment it encourages bad behavior by wicked people, or if in delayed punishment the victims then retaliate out of an evil desire to enact their own justice. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his life seemingly, mirage, is prolonged in spite of his wickedness, still I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear and worship him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, nor will he lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. 14, there is a meaningless and futile thing which is done on the earth, and that is there are righteous men whose gain is as though they were evil, and evil men whose gain is as though they were righteous. I say this too is a mirage. Then the teacher gives us the fifth Carpe Diem statement so far in Ecclesiastes. He said, then I commended pleasure and enjoyment because a man without God, has no better thing under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will stand by him in his toil through the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. So I applied my mind to know wisdom and see the activities of all kinds, of every man that takes place on earth. Some men seem to neither even sleep day or night but I saw all the work of God, and I concluded that man cannot discover the work that is done under the sun. Even though man may labor in seeking, he will not discover. And more than that, though a wise man thinks and claims he knows, he will not be able to find out. Let's jump back up to verse 1. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. 
It's interesting to me that he bookends this chapter with two different understandings of wisdom. Saying, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to know, to be able to interpret the matter. Who can do it? Is there anybody? And in the end, he says, nobody really can. A wise man might even think that he does, but he doesn't. He's saying here, too, that wisdom and understanding are folly. They're only an optical illusion. They have their limits, and they run out of answers. And this is what's been particularly hard, because I think it's easier for us to play out what happens in life when we pursue money and wealth, success, fame, hard work. We can see how those have eventual ends, but something as beautiful, what the scripture calls as wisdom, that that too is meaningless? How does that make sense? How do we make sense of that? Because ultimately, he already said, wisdom is good. He called wisdom a shelter. Wisdom preserves our life, but it has its own end. So we're going to look at the, these three tests, these definitions of his wisdom to see why it's futile, why it's just a mirage and can't produce something tangible for us to hang our hats on. Teachers been using wisdom to analyze these things as the definition that Merriam-Webster still gives today of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. It's not a bad definition. Wisdom's not a bad thing. Verse 16, he says, I applied my mind to see the experience of mankind, and I judged, and I made a conclusion. And the reason why these things are futile is because they're all relative. He's using man's definition of wisdom, man's understanding of experience and knowledge and judgment. So we're going to analyze these in depth. If you haven't had coffee, go get some coffee. I had a headache when I wrote it. Okay, so all these things are relative, including experience. Experience is always interpreted. You know this if you're married or really have had any relationship of some kind where you can experience the same circumstance, listen to the same message, go to the same concert, grow up in the same family, and come to a different interpretation and conclusion. Experience all the same things. The point is, we do not have, we cannot bring ourselves fully outside of our own context. We always bring ourselves and our own experience into the experience. For example, my husband and I, when we first started dating, I was visiting him in North Carolina, uh, where he was stationed, and we were sitting outside having coffee, this nice quiet moment, and a bird came and landed like two feet away on a post. And we just sat there quietly and watched it, and it stayed there for like a couple minutes, and we didn't move, we didn't say anything. Gets up and flies away, and I was like, wasn't that lovely? That was just so amazing. And I was like, I saw you, I saw you thinking, what were you thinking about? And he said, I, I was just thinking about how easy it would be to shoot it because it was so close. And I was appalled. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> I'm going to die. 
And he wanted me to preface this and say he was in military training to go to war, and he's not a psychopath, but uh, that is yet to be seen. <laughs> uh, but we all interpret our experience differently. We cannot rely on our experience to be the way we interpret the world because it is not always the true source of reality. Our brains are crafted to use experience on purpose. That is God's working. And he uses that experience to help inform our decisions in the future so that we are protected. So that my bad experience in the future will protect me from getting into the same bad experience, ideally, in the future. But it is limited. The teacher's saying, I, unlike pretty much everyone else on earth, have experienced the range of experience. I have been to the height of success and the depths of despair. I've worked so hard and I've been lazy. I have had wisdom, but I have also examined folly. I've had wealth and nothingness. I've experienced it all. And this is just to back up his claim that he knows this is futile. I've been there. I've done that. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. Your experience cannot be what we use alone to interpret what's real. This is similar to the idea of hindsight being 2020. And it's a good idea to an extent. It is also limited. But that when we have hindsight, we can see more clearly because our perspective is different. It's outside of ourselves. We've had more experience along the road to now inform me better of what that meant. This is a shadow of what we're talking about when we say living with the end in mind because we know the end. We're living life backwards with a different perspective than the one allowing just what's happening to me right now or so far in my journey to tell me how it's gonna end. The next test he uses is knowledge. In verse 16 and also in chapter seven, he talks a lot about knowledge. I applied my mind to knowledge. I turned my mind to understand and to investigate and search out wisdom and folly and the scheme of all things. There is an end also to human reason and knowledge, even if we claim we have it. We really can't, is what he's saying. A, a researcher at Northwestern, his name is Jacobus Garrick, did a study on the philosophies found within Ecclesiastes. And the reason it's fascinating is because he said, in sum, there is such a quantity, such a quality and diversity of philosophical perspectives from the teacher that it is impossible to point to just one to be used and to put him in a box and say, this is his perspective. He's even saying, I have used all forms of reason. And what's really interesting is that the philosophies that they identify predate when they were actually named by other philosophers. Some reasonings and modes of thinking like Epicureanism, whatever that means, didn't exist yet. But he's saying, not only have I experienced everything, I I've searched out all wisdom, and I've reasoned through every single way I can, and I've come to the same answer that it's 
not satisfactory. There was a, I think he was a philosopher also, his name is Condorcet, and he proposed that by human reason alone, the whole world would soon be cleansed of crime and poverty and war, and it was just a matter of time. That was a long time ago. And overall, human nature hasn't really changed. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, and I think it's a beautiful, he's an incredible writer. This is in his book, Strength to Love. It's just a collection of sermons, really easy to read. I would highly encourage you to buy it. Um, And he is explaining the pursuit of reason and knowledge and how out of order, what it does when it's out of order. The laboratory began to replace the church, and the scientists became a substitute for the prophet. Not a few joined Swinburne in singing a new anthem, glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of all things. The devotees of the new man-centered religion point to the spectacular advances of modern science as justification for their faith. Science and technology have enlarged man's body, The telescope and television have enlarged his eyes. The telephone and radio and microphone have strengthened his voice and his ears. And the automobile and airplane have lengthened his legs. The wonder drugs have even prolonged his life. Have not these amazing achievements assured us that man is able? I want you to understand and hear that I am not saying knowledge and reason are anti-God. That is not what I'm saying. There is a huge place for the church to regain its position in the intellectual field. Huge. Knowledge and reason point to God. Creation itself, just the, the very I alone, we still don't really understand the way it works. And it confounds all other, exper- uh, all other interpretations of creation that uh, creation created itself. It can't explain these things. Humanity cannot save itself through reason. We can legislate behavior. We can have programs. We can have systems. But like the Welfare Project, which I studied in uh, college uh, in England, they came back 20 years later or so and said, we were really counting on the inherent goodness of people for this to work. And it didn't. There's, uh, have you heard of the Church of Cannabis in Denver? Anybody? Been there even? I know you've walked by it. Uh, So it's a very old building like this one. And they bought it and they painted the inside. It is technicolor. It is a little bit cool in that way. However, uh, their mission statement is what I want to highlight of what happens when man makes himself God. And see if you can hang your hat on anything in here that has substance. Members of the International Church of Cannabis are known as elevationists. Through ritual, guided by spiritual practice, church members use the sacred flower to reveal the best version of self, discover a creative voice, and enrich their community with the fruits of that creativity. Unlike other belief systems, There's no need to convert to elevationism. It claims no divine law, no unquestionable doctrine, 
and no authoritarian structure. You really don't even belong, is what it's saying. There is nothing of substance here. It is Hebel. Church, according to man, is Hebel. This is what it looks like when you take God out of church. Now imagine the opposite. God in church. We still only have a shadow of it. Eternity is what that looks like. Pure substance and value and glory. I feel like I was thinking about this earlier. The opposite of smoke and vapor, like being fire. Anyway, so the last test we're going to look at. Experience and knowledge have limits. The last test is good judgment. I experienced, I reasoned, and I concluded based on my judgment of what is right and good and true, what justice means. The problem with that is that even for the teacher, his morality is relative. His idea of what is just, he cannot separate himself He cannot be a context-independent person without involving what he ultimately wants. Judgment changes from person to person and culture to culture, and even in one person over time, thank God. Fifteen years ago, I made vastly different judgments about my life, and I thought that they were good. For example, I broke my foot in high school, and I had a boot, and there were these giant pins sticking out, and I crutched myself everywhere. And there was one night I was in bed, and I heard this sound outside, and I was like, it's very sad. Went on, didn't stop. I opened the window to investigate, and in the rock beds, there were these kittens clustered in a little ball, trying to keep each other warm. And they were crying for their mother because she was nowhere to be found. And I was like, I need to save the kittens. But I know my mom's going to tell me no, so... Instead of crutching my way across a rock bed that's like 30 feet around our house, I'm just going to crawl out my window with my boot and crawl across the rocks to get the kittens. (sighs) Yes, I have a bleeding heart. And so I put the kittens in, I wrap them up, and somehow, I don't know how, I crawl back over the rocks into the window, hide them in my room, thinking, (laughs) I'm victorious. This was a great idea. No, I didn't further damage myself. It hurt, but uh, my stepfather is deathly allergic to cats. And so it was not long before I was found out and ridiculed, but I was like, I just, that was a really good decision. I would not do that now. (laughs) Thank goodness. And that is a shallow example. But it is still true. Over time, our judgment changes, hopefully for the better. But still... It's relative. Uh, 1940s, in Nuremberg, they were trying the Nazi regime, Nazi regime for war crimes against humanity. And the defense had this position of, hey, um, this is moral relativism. If morals are determined by a culture, then how can you convict these German soldiers for just following the values and laws and beliefs of their culture. And the trial had to stop, because they were like, ooh, that's a good point. We we still think, even in the 40s, they were like, hmm, maybe there isn't such a thing as absolute morality. But everyone there could testify to the fact that what they had done 
was wrong. And the chief counsel of the U.S., Robert Jackson, came up with the answer. And he said, the only way you can judge a culture is to appeal to a law above a law, a law that transcends culture and applies to both the winners and the losers using objective moral values. Uh, Leslie Newbegin in Proper Confidence uh, about the reasoning for God. So the only one who really has a context-independent standpoint is God. And man's folly surely is the supposition that he himself has it. We do not have that standpoint. I cannot judge you or the world or God with my idea of justice because I really cannot totally be objective, especially when I'm claiming that judgment is God's. God is the judge and he is just and the only one with true, pure objectivity. The teacher's point is this. Experience and knowledge and judgment are good things. They answer some questions. They have a degree of wisdom. They preserve life. They are a shelter. It's a good thing. But like all these other good things we've been looking at, pursuing that first, through my experience, my knowledge, my judgment, I cannot come to a conclusion that gives me a life-giving perspective. It is not the main thing. It will not satisfy. It will run dry. It has limits. The teacher comes to the end of himself. And this is where we start to take a different journey. In verse 19, he acknowledges the limits of his experience and wisdom. And he comes to a different conclusion. He just finished telling us about wicked people doing evil things. They're, they get away with it, and they're even honored for it. And he says this. Still I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear and worship him openly. Why? How, does he, how can he come to that conclusion? Because based on his experience, that hasn't been it yet. He is practicing what Proverbs 9.10 says is the beginning of all wisdom, the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Holy One that is understanding. When we withdraw from our own understanding to rule and reign and have dominion over our lives, we can draw near to what God says is true and valuable. He's acknowledging that even in the face of this pure injustice, and in a world that doesn't seem to make sense like our own, he says, still I know God will have the final say. And it is not a leap of faith, like faith, of, faith in faith. It is not a leap in the dark. I'm not blindly guessing and hoping that God's going to do this. He is using his knowledge of God's story thus far and how God's greater narrative informs his own. We too are a part of the greater narrative of scripture. We are in it, and it is being finished. God is the author. Let's define fear of the Lord. 
because fear as a word in itself has a lot of emotion and it, it makes us miss the point and what it's actually saying. Fear in the Greek is called aeros and eulabia, if I say, I'm saying that right. And it means reverence or profound, adoring, awed respect. It's easy for us to say awe of God. Fear makes us think of shrinking away, like a hot stove. I have fear because I know this is going to hurt me, and so I'm, I'm going to shrink away from it and not touch it. That is not what this is. Healthy fear protects us from physical and emotional harm. God made it that way. But what God also made is that he draws us in through awe. And the effects are similar in that it protects us and it results in us trembling, but we're not trembling because we're afraid of, we're trembling because of awe. Exodus 20, if you want to turn there, you can. Exodus 20, 18 through 21, uh, God just brought the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They've already seen all these amazing miracles God has done to deliver them out of slavery. And this is when the Israelites really encounter fear of the Lord. I'll give you a second to turn there. This is going to help us round out its purpose. And I want you to pay special attention to the movement that happens here. Drawing away, shrinking back. Now all the people witnessed the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the smoking mountain. And as they looked, the people were afraid. And they trembled and moved backward and stood at a safe distance. 19. Then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him or the profound reverence of him will remain in you. Change your behavior so that you won't sin. The people stood at a safe distance. But Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Moses already has this track record with God where he's already chosen to draw near to the burning bush and speak with God, and it will continue. Moses meets with God in the tent of meeting all through Israel's track record and making a temple. And when God makes his home with man, Moses is right there, and he's not going to miss it. Even after all this time, he says, God, show me your glory. I know there's, there's more. And God's like, okay, <laughs> I will. But the Israelites couldn't even look at him. He had to put a veil over his face because he spent so much time in the awe of God, his face was too bright for them to look at. It was blinding. The awe of God has no limits. It is limitless. There's always more to see and behold. We're going to look now at Luke 5 to have a different perspective the same idea of awe of God and what it does. And again, I want you to pay attention to the movement and people's responses and how they're different. Luke 5, 4 through 13. There are going to be two people we encounter. When he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so much so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on his knees, saying, Depart from me, from I am a sinful man, O Lord. Nine. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So also were James and John and partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid because he's exhibiting that trembling awe. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And we, he saw Jesus. He also fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. What's interesting to me is the different responses we have to the awe of God. Everyone is disqualified here. Moses is not special. He is not different. Neither is Simon from the beggar. They both have recognized their need for God. They witness the awe. But the question is, how do we let our disqualification, do we let it keep us from him? Or will that be what ultimately draws us to him? I have reached the end of my own understanding. My reasoning, my understanding is disqualified, but will that be what draws me to him? Will my failure make me feel shamed and disqualified to where I shrink back in fear, like punishment, that God's going to punish me. Fear in an unhealthy sense, is not legalism. God isn't saying, I'm showing you my glory so that you will be so afraid of me and being punished by me that you don't sin. That's duty. That's obligation out of fear of punishment. How many of us know that the well of duty is shallow? You can draw from it for a little while and modify your behavior, but at the end of the day, it runs out. What Proverbs 14.27 describes the fear of the Lord to be as a fountain of life that turns you away from the snares of death. Snares are traps. They look good on the outside. They could be things that are wise and good and beneficial, but ultimately, if we pursue them, it would be unwise and detrimental and grieving. The fear of the Lord is a never-ending fountain of life by which we have all of our needs and understanding met. It is not fear or afraid of. To the point where the fear of God even casts out other fears. Philo, the philosopher, found that, Philo, even the philosophical idea of God was a solution for alleviating fear and distress in people. 
And Jung, Carl Jung, the psychologist, even used that with his patients and found success, that people who had uncontrollable anxiety, if he helped them just fashion this idea of a God that might exist, it alleviated them from their anxiety. And that's just the idea. We're talking about the real thing. Reverential fear of God is a remedy for fears like suffering, want, opposition, persecution, and death. It's all throughout scripture. Because perfect love and being sheltered under the sovereignty and awe of God casts out all fear. It even says in the New Testament that Jesus' delight was the fear of the Lord. Is the awe of God because it acknowledges God's sovereignty as the ultimate author and perfecter of our faith. That no matter what happens, God makes it well. And I am not saying with sovereignty that God wills evil to happen. Good things and bad things do not represent the will of God. I hear Christians say all the time, COVID. What was God doing? Why did he send COVID? Or uh, maybe God, maybe God did that to your life so that you could learn to be more patient. As if God willed an evil event, something that isn't good, to happen so that it would grow you in some manner. And that would be to say that God wills evil. God permits evil to happen in order to preserve the freedom of man but he does not cause it, and there is a huge difference. Freedom of man is always in the framework of God's sovereignty. God, There is nothing anyone else or even that we can do to ultimately unseat God's will and purpose in this life, in my life, in your life, and in this world. We're simply not that powerful. Thank God. In Esther, uh, Esther 4, 14, I think, Mordecai tells her, because she's in this position where she can save the whole of the Israelite people. And it really hangs on her. But he says to her, even if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive for another, from another place. What did Mordecai understand? It is not about Esther. It is not about us. It's not about you. It is for us. Esther is invited to participate in the grand narrative and what God's doing so that she can witness his glory and be a witness to the earth. It is for us, but it's not about us. Bonhoeffer said to his seminary students in World War II, he said, God is infinitely able to weave anything that happens, whether it is good or evil, into his purposes, and he absorbs them, and the promise that we carry is that he makes them new. This is our promise as Christians, as those who love God. There may not have been a reason this happened, a God-ordained reason, but with God, he will make a reason, and it will be good. It is not wasted. We know we're not exempt from trouble. Being a Christian is not an easy stamp on your life. Jesus said to his followers who are closest to him, you will have trouble in this world. Don't be surprised when it comes knocking at your door. It's not from me, but take heart. 
because I have overcome the world, and by that, you are conquerors, more than conquerors. John Piper said, in God's providence, everything is significant. Everything is meaningful. Nothing is random. Nothing is pointless. Nothing is meaningless. Because in the fear of the Lord, we have assumed God's perspective as the author and finisher of our faith from beginning to end within the grand narrative that is his glory and his redemption of man and creation. He will finish what he started. Worship team, you can come up. God is not limited like the things that we do sometimes pursue. They're not bad things. Even good things are okay if they're in the right order. God is not limited in understanding, experience, or knowledge, nor is he limited by my experience, understanding, or judgment. When we come to the end of our experience, knowledge, our success, our own disqualification, and we fix our eyes on Christ and we seek his kingdom, all these things will be added to us. When our eyes are on God and in his awe, our faces shine like Moses. Like the teacher was saying in verse 1. We will delight ourselves in the Lord when we understand the fear of the Lord. It is for you. We live life backward with eternity in our hearts. That all these things will be given to us. But even if they are taken away... Still, we know it will be good. It will be well. Because he who was and he who is and who is to come has the final say. God, we need a revelation. We need a new understanding of our experience that is beyond our knowledge, the knowledge that surpasses knowledge like Paul prayed to, so that we will therefore receive the fullness of Christ in this life. Open our eyes and our understanding to know and see who you are. Show us the awe of God, the fear of the Lord. Let us see your glory so that we can be changed by it alone. God, I pray through your perspective, you would allow us to see who the real enemies are. That it is not our boss. It is not my spouse. It is not my neighbor. It is not Israel. It is not Palestine. It is not Hamas. The real enemy in this life are the rulers and the principalities of darkness. And you desire that all should come to know you, that none should perish. God, we pray for every mind that has given itself to serve its own justice. I pray that you, through dreams and visions, would meet and save your people and that we, as participants in your divine nature, will bear witness to who you are and who you say people are. Jesus, you You are the king above all the kings that think they have authority. All the kings that do have authority, you reign. No matter what comes, you reign. Amen.